Welcome to the 100th episode of The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. For the past two years, we have been bringing you weekly conversations with the biggest names in filmmaking. To celebrate this milestone, we're sharing highlights from our most popular episodes. You'll hear from acclaimed directors like David Fincher and Judd Apatow, beloved actors like Parker Posey and Kate Winslet, and many more. To start off, we'll go to a segment from our very first episode, which featured a discussion with Paul Thomas Anderson from the 52nd New York Film Festival. Anderson's Inherent Vice had its world premiere as the festival's centerpiece selection, and later on he joined Kent Jones for our annual On Cinema Conversation, in which we invite directors to share and discuss clips from films that inspire them. Here he is discussing his love of celluloid after showing a clip from Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Quentin is someone else who sticks to film. Yeah. And, is, who's, and who's actually about to shoot in 70 as That's well. right, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah Quentin's, Quentin's, a, Quentin's a film nerd too, I suppose. We're all a small group of us, hopefully growing and sticking together. Quentin's much more vocal about it, though. I mean, he wants mm-hmm. to like, you know, he wants to like, tar and feather people who shoot yeah. digitally. Yeah. <laughs> like, like turn it in, so wants to turn it into one of his movies, like, I'm gonna cut your fucking ear off yeah. if you shoot this. <laughs> Which would, and that would include the, the director of our opening night film, David Fincher, who, for him, he could, he could see film disappear tomorrow. And he's, right, right. You know, he's, and, he's uh, yeah. got a very articulate argument for the other side of it. And Man, I stay out of it. Yeah. I stay out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, fade into the background on that. <laughs> well, yeah, but you... No, I certainly have thrown my hat into the ring for yeah. what I like, but I also just can't. I I also did. I find it difficult to to get on anybody if it's what their if it's yeah. their bag, you know. And I'm like, you know, it's your bag, you know. You're into it. Yeah. I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you what to do. I don't want you to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. You know. I, I but I I think I think at at the moment things are going around where genuinely there's such concern and fear in the air about. Yeah. Film not even being an option. Yeah, that right. there, there, there really is a movement among filmmakers right now to, re- to desperately encourage um, filmmakers that are coming up, filmmakers that are around and are, and are producing stuff right now, to if you have a choice, please shoot film. That there is no financial uh, incentive to shooting digitally if you're at yeah. a certain budget level. It, that you know, obviously, it's very, e- it's much, much easier for younger filmmakers to sort of pick up a camera and get yes. something done without a lot of costs and a lot of um, stuff. But so there's there is a there's a lot of dialogue going on right now among people making films, just really trying to encourage so that we we can keep it alive and. Yeah. It, you would think it shouldn't be that hard, but it's dif- it's been difficult. Well, that was a scary moment with Kodak. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a temporary reprieve, but the, right. the, the death notice is. I mean, there's still a kind of like sign on your back saying, you know, this you, you're still going to get executed. You know, <laughs> you got to keep it. You got to really do. We've got more needs to be done. So that's kind of yeah, that's a real reality that's going on for some of us trying to keep that stuff. Yeah, going. and I think. A lot of people don't realize how uh, there there are quite a few filmmakers who still do shoot on film. Wes Anderson still shoots on film. Marty Scorsese, for the most part, shoots on film. Yeah. Um, um, but well, what's good too is that J.J. Abrams is shooting Star Wars on film, yeah. so it, it requires um, you know some of these bigger bigger films. Chris Nolan obviously is sort yeah. of at the front lines of all of this. Yes. I, I have to say. Um, yeah. Who's made a beautiful film? If anybody can get out and see Interstellar when it comes out, 
I think uh, I think people will get out. They can, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I was just trying to put in a good word. You probably yeah, haven't no. heard about this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Support it's, this filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But don't fuck around. Go see it in IMAX too. Don't don't yeah. wait, don't you know? Brave the line. Do it. Bite the bullet. Brave the line and go see it in IMAX. And, it's fucking amazing. And, and fight tooth and nail for that seat in the center of the theater. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you if you sit in the wrong seat in an IMAX theater, you can. Yeah, toss that can lunch. ruin your day. I yeah. think, and you need a chiropractor after it. But um, <laughs> well, don't go the first couple weekends and just yeah. wait and go wait for the seat. wait after the first six months and then go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the solution, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Jackie Brown is that also the feel of it in relation to the city, to L.A., and to, you know, is... Well, yeah, you know, the funny thing is, Quentin's down from the South Bay, which is like an, another planet to right. me, because that's not... I'm from another side of town. Right. And there's so much South Bay stuff in, 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 in Jackie Brown. Yeah. And technically an inherent vice, too, so, you know... Um, it rang around in my mind. How did Quentin do South Bay? You know, it's different air and stuff like that, but yeah. it would be hard not to ignore it. So skillfully done. The combination of characters. I did not read the book that it's based on, yeah, but being from Los Angeles, seeing the combination of characters, it's just one of those things like, this makes sense. That the Sam Jackson character, the way he looks, the way Bridget Fonda looks, the way Robert De Niro looks, like I've seen these fucking people milling around the South. I've seen I, it doesn't. It's not a movie, movie mm -hmm. fake movie shit. It's yeah. like, has anybody seen Jackie Brown recently? I hope. I, mean, I hope so. <clears throat> Good. Yeah. Here's Parker Posey from episode 39 discussing the evolution of American independent film and working with Christopher Guest. You've worked with so many different types of directors, and I imagine yeah. the directors with so many different approaches to how they interact with the performer, the yeah, actor. Yeah, the best ones are really relaxed, and um, you have an enormous respect for them, you know, and love for them, and uh, for their story and the world that you're the, the fingertips of, you know. Um, but they do. Some directors like to control. Um, some are, uh, kind of inhabit the movie when I did Superman Returns with, um, Brian Singer, I was like, he's very absorbed in, in, in both Superman and Lex Luthor, you know, and he was going through stuff and he was very emotional, um, and great. And they're on set to, you know, to direct and sometimes we did you know, just a few takes and the scene was over in less than 10 minutes and sometimes not, but there's, that, that was also a movie that was, you know, really big budget. So that pressure comes into it too. Um, I love working with uh, directors, you know, real directors, it's really fun. But they do have a different process. Um, but you you acclimate to that, and you you communicate with them in uh, in unconscious and conscious ways. I'd love to ask. In you Woody's how. movie, I felt like you're just like the wardrobe designer Susie Benzinger. She uh, when we were doing our wardrobe, and I got shoes from different places, and I brought some stuff myself. 
she's like, make sure you're the, you know, you're the character during the camera test, which was hard for me to do. I was like, hi, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like excited to be there. But when I, when I walked in on the, on the soundstage, it's very somber, and I got a little taste of what the movie, what the temperature of the movie was like. Um, and, uh, you know, was the character immediately, um, or was at least on, on my way to being. Some directors like to talk, like to go over the script and go over every little line and, and want your opinion on what it means subtextually or any stories you might want to add. Or I've worked mainly with directors who've left me alone. So how, has, how do you then see your, the way you act, the way you perform, or your role as an actress having changed over time? You said you still have the same insecurities about the work, but do you see that your own way of interacting with a director or interacting with material has changed, evolved? I feel like I've, I know so much. Like, uh, I'll work with directors who haven't had the experience of being on sets as much as I have. So I know, um, I I feel like in a way I teach, you know, if it's an independent movie, I can kind of show the crew how it's, not how it's done, but kind of relax things or um, create a vibe. It really is about a vibe. I'm, I'm taking away, you, you were talking about the temperature of a movie and now the vibe of a movie, which mm. seems to be the, the kinds of, the tones that kind of, the, the tones are what influence you or you're yeah, drawn to. Yeah, or what instrument am I, you know, in this, especially with Woody Allen, um, what, what, what kind of energy, what kind of instrument. Um, so I felt like a bass. bass. Yeah. <laughs> You guys, this is totally boring for you. That's my friend Johanna over there. (laughs) Um, We're going to get to questions from the audience in just a moment. I think we have microphones. Who, where are our microphones? I just want to spot people are, are there there we go. So get ready. Um, Transition question to the audience. I was thinking a lot about... um, my previous job, a company called IndieWire. It's almost 20 years old next year. Um, 20 years ago, filmmaking in this country was very specific to filmmaking in the city. Um, the kinds of movies that were being made in New York were defining American uh, filmmaking. Um, independent, American independent filmmaking was, was a very specific, uh, of a very specific moment and also, um, supported in a certain way that enabled so many amazing artists, performers, writers, directors to not only kind of coalesce and, and work together, but also make a mark that is still being felt. It's a feel we had a community. You felt um, that? Yeah, yeah. But then it got co-opted by the studio system, and this is, this is America. So, And now we have movies that are bigger, that are more genre, because they're, it's, it's corporate. So I think there's, you know, there's a whole generation that only likes genre films. And uh, filmmakers like Woody Allen or Scorsese have distinctive voices. But the good thing now is you can be, um, you know, a young filmmaker. Uh, I think of 
upstream color or computer chess. Yeah. Um, these two uh, 30-something girl directors mm-hmm. and the movies are really good and mm-hmm. they're, they're speaking in a language. It's just whether or not audiences can be distracted um, from their own screens to want to experience a story in a theater with a bunch of people. And I, I hope they are, you know, I hope they still are. And so how are you dealing with that now as a creative person, the way you interact with other creative people and the screens for which you're performing are changing in front of us? Yeah, well, I'm, co- how are you- I'm collaborating with a friend of mine named Jack Fervor, and he's a performance artist. And so I'm thinking of new ways to, you know, not be such an old lady and to adjust to these times and, and how people are changing how they view things and what I think is missing from that. And uh, so I have some ideas. I uh, New Year's, I had a New Year's resolution that I've not kept, which was to join social media. Um, <laughs> so I, I think about it. Um, but I haven't, I haven't done it yet. But uh, I am because for me, it's a screen and it's a way to express and and um, and to to make something with. And I do take pictures of of my food. I, I have, uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to share that with people. Um, <laughs> although they're they're really good pictures, really really good. So I'm thinking Instagram could be good for you. Yeah, I'm thinking that too. Okay. To be continued. Let's see what... I got my dentist to take some pictures with me. You did? Yeah. So I'm thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about it. Let's see what the audience is thinking about. Let's see what questions they have for you. You, sir, you were were here early. Hi, um, I wanted to ask you about working with Christopher Guest and what that process is like compared to other directors you've you've worked with. I love those movies. I love those movies, too. And that process is really unusual and... uh, you're really writing a bio of your character. Is it stressful as an actor to work with that style? Yes, yes. It starts out very stressful, but once you're in the water, you're kind of like, this is, this is the ultimate. It's freeing. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he gives you an outline that's about 30 pages long, and uh, there are descriptions about what happens to your character. Meg... Swan and Hamilton talk about their dog, Beatrice, to their therapist. They're upset that um, they, the dog caught them having sex and they don't know if the dog can compete in Westminster Dog Show. They met at Starbucks, you know, and that's it. So um, Michael Hitchcock and I went uh, shopping when we, uh, at uh, J. Crew when we thought we had a pointer and then when we found out we had a Weimaraner, we went Banana Republic. <laughs> they were also described as a catalog couple. So, and Hitchcock was so funny, you know, he'd like untuck one, you know, uh, shirt and tuck the other part in. And, um, oh man. So little things like that, and they're not even talked about, you know? You don't stress about it or like, oh, I think this will be really funny, and you just kind of, you show up and you, you, you just start interacting live like you do with people all the time, like we're doing now. But I don't come from the groundlings or improv group, uh, but like I said earlier, I don't like to rehearse, and it's, it's in that serves me well for those 
movies because I can just focus on the, the other person and um, and be in the moment. Uh, but some they're it's really they're really fun. They're you know you can't you can't laugh or you you ruin a take for for someone else, and that's really hard. Um, and Catherine O'Hara is like, think if your dog's gonna die, Chris is really mad at you, you're gonna be in trouble, you know, like things like that. And she can't have you, it's so funny, and, and he's such a gifted wit and funny person and kind and, uh, and uh, thoughtful. So he's like one of those directors that I really love and respect. Todd Haynes discusses the influence of the late Chantal Ackerman on his approach to filmmaking in episode 58. Uh, yeah, I, it's still so, so, I think the weight of her, that loss is still um, being understood, if mm. it can be. And, um, and, and really, the, 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 maybe now, the weight of, of her amazing body of work, and, um, and, and so much of it I haven't. Uh, caught up, you know. There's plenty of her films I haven't seen. There's a, she made a lot of films over the years, but um, but yeah, uh, I mean, I, I you know, everyone probably who knows her work and has seen Jean Dielman and and what that first experience was watching that film. I don't know that my particular reaction is unique, but it was um, profound and really. Um, uh, exhilarating and um, it's so inspiring you know f f for uh, you know the f as a filmmaker as a someone thinking about female subjects and how they're depicted and 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 how and what we come to expect um, you know is occupied on screen when we tell the story of women's lives and what is important and what is not important and uh, and I just remember it was at in college uh, that I was first exposed to her, and we watched Jean Dielman, and and you know, it's a long film, but you and you see the running time on your syllabus, and you're like, oh god, okay, fuck. <laughs> and uh, and then this is it Brown just, or at Bard? This is it Brown, mm -hmm. and you just fall into the. Um, you know the incantation, the the unbelievable uh, spell of observing labor, of observing work in the kitchen, of observing routines uh, that define her life. All the things that we've, you know, as people have said about the film many times, and there's been so much said about it that is normally <coughs> removed from movies. This is what the center of this film is, and the big events because she she receives it, uh, has you know uh, sees. Uh, tricks John's at the end of the day to supplement her income and as soon as the doorbell rings it cuts and we're back in the kitchen the next morning and watch the routines again and when you know, I'll just never forget when she's making the coffee and putting the same amount of cups in but you're you're slowly marking a um, uh, you know de degradation a, 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 a unraveling of this life she puts one extra cup of water in the pot, I think it is, and everybody in the room went <gasps> <laughs> and and just the sheer power of understatement and and negation of of action, you know, and how much we make those 
events meaningful, you know, and how much when they are just slammed at us in traditional films, we're kind of numbed to, to what those things convey and signify. Anyway, it just, it's, I don't feel like I, there's much to, that, 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 you have to just watch the film, I think, and that's the most, but certainly when it came to Safe, um, it was a seminal film I couldn't not think about, and, uh, and I was also interested in um, setting up different kinds of obstacles to the way we normally uh, identify with central characters in movies and what uh, the viewer does uh, sort of uh, in recourse of that, uh, the, the sort of way you, the, the circuitous ways that you compensate and you, and you fill in yourself. Um, how hungry we are to um, participate in narrative experience and emotional experience, and so when there, are, so it's really interesting to set up those obstacles to pare down what we normally just throw out at, at, at spectators in films. And so with Carol, it was a, it was this evacuation of a subject that was really the starting point for this person. And her relationship, absolutely, as you also feel in John Dillman, but in a very different way, to her environment and her domestic life. And um, at times, an almost oppressive um, uh, um, center position in the frame um, that, uh, that somehow she does not feel like she owns, that if anything, she feels dwarfed and minimized by. Um, but, uh, and, and again, as in Sean Dealman, a performance that, that, you know, astounds me still of Julianne Moore's in that film that, that um, made something absolutely um, recognizable and flesh and blood on the other end of this, these series of sort of interesting conceptual questions about, you know, who this woman is. Mm -hmm. I, uh, unlike Sean Dealman, she's... Uh um, the Carol in, in Safe is uh, not in control of the environment. She's pinned in the environment, right. which is something that you're just aware of at every given moment. And right. you know how do it, it's as if you know she can she can't even uh, she ha she has no possibility of lateral movement in or out. She's she's utterly defined by the environment, and then yeah. the environment becomes this culprit that contaminates her. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it it you know destabilizes or undermines the question of an identity that already feels so conditional and right. sort of defined by the outside. Um, and you know, it related to a lot of the sort of a long history of. Uh, uh, I, I loved the very set when I first heard about environmental illness. Right. Um, and 20th century disease, it was also, the phrase was coined early on, and that it was only, it seemed to only affect housewives in their domestic, suburban lifestyle realms, and seemed to um, be caused by the chemicals in their products that they were surrounded by, and in the, you know, outgassing of the carpets and the upholstery in their homes. and. I just, you know, it just brought up a long and complicated history of women and illness 
and um, pathologizing women and um, and around their bodies and around their their environments and how they are domesticated in, mm -hmm. in life and the but the solution was removing them from these environments and putting sort of isolating them into these little these little um, encampments yes um, these places of safety which where where Julianne Moore ends up in in safe in addition to our weekly series we often release bonus episodes that dive into our extensive archives one of our most popular archival episodes featured a conversation with David Fincher from the 48th New York Film Festival in 2010. Here, he discusses how he decided to pursue a career as a movie director from a very early age. Yeah, I wanted to be a movie director. I wanted Seriously? To be yeah, I, mean, I was eight from years what, old. From what age? No, I was eight years old. I, I, was eight. I, walked, out of, I walked out of the Rafael Theater on 4th Street in San Rafael, and I'd just seen... Um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and I walked out and I got in my dad's 65 Impala and I slid over these gigantic seats in front of this steel dashboard. And he said, what did you think? Because he loved the movie. And I said, it was amazing. And he said, so what do you think about it? You know, what do you, and I said, I want to make movies. And he was like, great. And we drove home and, and literally from that, from 19, this was, well, this is 69. So it was fall of 69. From that point on, my entire life has been i mean third grade fourth grade fifth grade i took film classes and in high school i couldn't take film so i worked in a movie theater and i worked at a local television station shooting eng stuff i did plays you know built sets did lighting and basically just said you know however i have to cobble took photography um and kind of cobbled a curriculum what do you think it was about butch cassidy that well, it's a, did it for you? Yeah, it was. It was the transportive. I guess it was. Well, it was quite specifically. I'd seen a documentary on the making of it, and and I'd seen it before I saw the movie, and it's kind of a great documentary. It's it's narrated by George Roy Hill. It's actually on one of the special edition DVDs. You know, they only make like eight of those for every movie, so it's hard to keep up. But but it had a it had a the, there was a documentary that was on CBS and. And or NBC, but it was um, it was all the behind the scenes stuff. It was narrated by George Roy Hill, who had this great kind of pragmatic voice of this is why we did what we did, and this is why I cast these people, and here's what I like about them. And and I sort of thought, I guess it was the the fact that it illuminated for me that movies didn't happen in real time. It was like I thought I always thought if the movie was two hours long, it probably took. I mean, you know three, four days to shoot that thing, you know? I thought, I, I, because that was stupid, I was eight. And, um, and so I, uh, it, it, so it was the first time that I realized that, my God, there's like, they're shipping all these horses to, you know, Wyoming and shooting that shot, and then they're going to, you know, Arizona to get that shot. And I, it, it was the first time it ever occurred to me that there was this incredible circus and, and all of this time and thought and preparation, I thought, that sounds like a gigantic waste of time. Sign me up. No, so I, I, just a quick aside, George Roy Hill was the first director I ever interviewed, and it's when he came to San Francisco to promote Butch Cassidy, and he flew in on his own plane. That's what impressed me so much. He yeah, flew he was, in, he landed at San Francisco airport, 
he came up to the Fairmont and we did the interview and talked for two hours and I was so impressed with this guy. I mean, he was so smart. Yeah. And he was, he was really a little smart. sarcastic and he was, yeah. but it really, uh, you know, he, he made popular films, but uh, really, really had ones. extra dimensions. Yeah, yeah. Every morning before he went to work, he played Bach for about 20 minutes yeah, just to penis. compose himself yeah. and be focused. And then yeah, I mean, and you look at the movies and they're all, um, you know, Slapshot, Sting, Butch Cassidy, Slaughterhouse Five, you know, they're all... They're uh, Waldo Pepper, uh, World According to Garp. They're all they're great. He was he was solid. Yeah. Did you have any other artistic inclinations? I mean, did you draw? Did you write yeah, stories? Dad, what else did you do? My dad was a ca cartoonist for a while when he was, he was young, and so he taught me how to draw, and I pretty much drew. I mean, I would sit in my room from four, about four years old on. I mean, I could sit in my room for my bedroom for. 10 hours and draw and my parents would be like he's drawing what did you draw what kind of stuff was everything, it man. perverse like, you know violent yeah. action stuff or what yeah. no I mean you know it's that whole thing where you're sitting there it's a kid and you know you're kind of hunched over you're going <laughs> you know you drew like planes and strata fortress you know because I know a lot of drawers, Spielberg and Lucas were big drawers and uh, a lot of people did that uh yeah, I mean, I guess it come it com it kind of comes with the you you have to think in terms of uh, you are thinking in terms of three dimensions as you're staging stuff, but all, ultimately you're reducing everything down to two dimensions. So you're so you're I mean, you have to kind of think in terms of you the edge of the space that you have. So I think it probably helps in some way. Did you have a, a lot of like-minded friends, or were you a loner? No, I mean, I, I mean, this is Marin County, this is San Anselmo, um, Marin County Bay Area, San Francisco. In the, between like 19, I moved there in 65. My parents moved there in 65, and I left in 76. So you're talking about THX 1138 was made at the Marin County Civic Center. The Godfather was shot on Shady Lane and... and and Ross, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I mean, all the pre-production for uh, The Candidate. Uh, uh, most of Downhill Racer was at least, you know, kind of prepped and edited out of the Bay Area. Um, um, uh, the Conversation. I mean, all these movies were being made. You know, Phil Kaufman, I, he did Body Snatchers, and I yeah. think he did one other film in San Francisco. I can't remember what it was. But, but there, it was a real burgeoning... I mean, everyone on my block wanted to be a director. I mean, George Lucas was my neighbor, so it was kind of like you were going, you know. I remember a story I, I have to tell because it, it's, it's sort of indicative of um, this time and this place. There was a rock that was this, um, had this sort of promenade that looked out over my friend Scott Kittleman, my, my next-door neighbor, who was Lucas's house, and then was Scott's, and then there was this little promenade, and then there was our house. And, um, and my friend Chris and my friend Scott, we were... 12 yeah I guess we were like 12 or 13 years old must have been and we're sitting on this rock and we're looking out over this hedge and you can see Lucas's house and it's this giant white house Victorian very beautiful giant grounds pool and poplar trees and stuff and we're sitting there we're looking and, and I turned to my friend Scott who you know knew Lucas's the Lucas's pretty well Marshawn and he, I said so what's George up to what's he doing these are like, we're 13 years old. And, I, and he says, well, he's off in 
London doing uh, this movie, the, the Star Wars, because it was called The Star Wars at the time. And I said, really? Always drop the the. Yeah, exactly. When in doubt. And my friend Chris turns and he goes, really? Science fiction? Didn't he learn his lesson with THX 1138? <laughs> <laughs> and I was thought, so awesome, you know? Had, had, had we been able to blog. Um, <laughs> Just in the whole mix of this, when did you first see 2001 and what was your reaction to that? Um, I was about seven. Seven? Oh, yeah, my dad took me to, my, my, my father was a, uh, uh, loved movies. I mean, lived, um, spent an inordinate amount of his youth in, in movie theaters. Had a very unhappy um, childhood and spent a lot of time sort of away from dysfunction by going to the movie theater. And um, so he loved movies and he used to, but, and, and we had a, I mean, on the weekends, you know, time away f for us, you know, was not, we didn't go and play baseball. We would go to the movies and he would say, oh, you got to see this. You haven't seen Rear Window? I was like, dad, I'm four. And so, I, <laughs> you know, well, fuck, we got to go, you know? So, so um, he took me, I was about seven years old and he had seen, and he took me to a double feature in, in, in San Francisco. And it was a, you know, it was a big 70 millimeter. It was double feature with Yellow Submarine and 2001 Space Odyssey. And it was awesome. And I was seven and I'm sitting there and I'm watching this thing and I'm going, you know. You, get, you know, contact there. highs just by being in that theater. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, I mean, in San Francisco in the 60s. Yeah. So it was, so, um, so, you know, the first movie, I'm like, we all live in a yellow submarine, you know, it's great. And then all of a sudden the second movie starts and it's, 20 minutes no one's talking and I, you know, it's just monkeys and i turned to him and i said you know dad no one's talking and he looks at me and he smiles and he goes that's the point and i said oh, okay fine it's the point that no one's talking but um i remember you know having my mind fairly blown just kind of um because again you as a child you look at stuff and you sort of think They're trying to, I mean, they're preparing me for something. Like, they're preparing me for the future. Like, I remember watching that film and going, okay, I have to be prepared for space travel. And then I have to, because most of what, when you're a kid, you know, when you're a student in school, they're showing you movies or whatever. It's like preparing you for, you know, dissection or whatever. This is how to dissect frogs or here's what human reproduction is or whatever they're preparing you for stuff so i remember watching this movie and going i'm being prepared for space travel and kind of going wow and then it got to the end and i was like i'm being prepared for the afterlife like <laughs> i don't know that i need this at seven hey there this is eugene hernandez deputy director here at the film society of lincoln center thank you for listening to our podcast the close-up if you like what you hear please subscribe to get new episodes delivered to you every week you can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help us reach more cinephiles like you all around the world and help us make this podcast even better. Thanks again for listening, and now back to our show. During last year's New York Film Festival, we welcomed some of the brightest minds from many aspects of entertainment for a panel discussion. The theme was diversity, and esteemed panelists Effie Brown, Ira Deutschman, Mark Harris, Susan Lewis, Manette Louie, Rose McGowan, and Lydia Dean Pilcher took part in a spirited debate 
about the ongoing issue of inequality in the Hollywood system. Here's a clip from their conversation, which was featured in episode 52. It's a, it's a story that happened to me at Sundance this year after seeing the movie Dope, mm. so, which was a great movie, um, diverse cast, um, black male director. And I went from that movie into another screening. And in that screening, you know, the movie hadn't started, so everybody was chitting, you know, chitter-chattering and gossiping. And there was a woman standing right in front of me, a white woman, talking about how great Dope was. And she was, she was talking to somebody who actually worked with the director. And she's having this conversation about how great the movie was and how you need to get Rick a movie that, that and we need to change that movie. We, we need to, you know, get him a comic book, but change it. Oh, and you know, he needs to be with the Tyler Perry family. Oh, I know, uh. Tyler Perry. And this is a, per- <laughs> the thing is, this is a person who has a real job at a real production company and has real power there. Right, and they're dangerous. And they're dangerous. And they're I, very I dangerous was, to us, I, the audience. Because this, this person has the responsibility of going back to her little office in Hollywood and writing lists about who can direct this movie. And if she only puts Rick on a movie that is with black people, well, what does that do for his career? I mean, we're great, and we can make a great movie about us, but like, we should be he able could to make also anything. make a movie with white people in it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was so upset. Just I mean, the world Not is just so people. Just, black and just white, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it just, to me, that moment crystallized everything that was a problem, because she didn't see anything wrong with it at all. I had to stop her. And say, did you, did you see the movie? Because I. Well, what's great is that you were in the room. Like, there's a certain thing of, well, you know what I mean. Of, of mm-hmm. sometimes, and this is really upsetting. Sometimes being the only woman or person of color, or a down white man, because I know you got this. But gay, sometimes, gay. you know what I mean. You know what I mean. You got down, this. I'm not yeah. the patriarchy. I'm gay. Not, I like exactly. guys. That's okay. There you go. Look at him. Look at him. He's claiming it. Yes. I love you. So, like, drop the mic. But sometimes we have to be the. The spokesperson. Do you know what I mean? And like, and it's like, an, I am nobody's role model. I am nobody. Like, I am not, I'm not politically correct. But sometimes I've had to been like, all right, let me tell you what's jacked up about what you just said. You know what I mean? But you have to sort of quietly get over. Do you know what I mean? And be like, and then you can sort of change them one person at a time. But you have to be in that room in order to change that point of view. I'm in those rooms. I just came from a meeting at Paramount uh, a week ago, and um, there's a woman who's the head of I don't know what something big, and. Um, <laughs> She was laughing when she got off the phone. I'll give you a tiny behind-the-scenes moment of women in Hollywood. And this is a woman in power. And she was laughing when I came in and, and still on the phone. She said, ah, ha, 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 sorry. Uh, hang on. Oh, Rose, this is such a funny story. You'll get a kick out of this. Um, my friend who's the head of casting here, don't worry, he's gay. Um, just got his movie cast. I'm really happy for him. He cast all the main roles, but he, what, he did, what he does, and this happened on a TV show I was on all the time, is they invent a role for the bikini girl. So the women um, have to come in and audition to get in, in bikinis for the role, and that way they get all the men that need to make all the decisions in the room, and they can make the decision on what men to cast. Ooh. And this is a normal fucking Tuesday afternoon. So you're goddamn right I'm angry right now. I'm sick of it. I'm really, really sick of it. And I, I, and it's okay. He's a gay man. Now, and I said, what your your friend is actually a pimp. Your friend is trafficking on female bodies. And your friend is disgusting. And I'm sorry. So are you? And I got up and walked out. I doubt I'll be working with Paramount. I'm okay with that. Damn. <laughs> she must have a savings account. 
So there's that. And Hollywood. The stuff I've seen would make hairs curl. And I'm sure the stuff a lot of us have seen, but coming at it from the perspective of like the person that they consider lucky to be there. Yeah, it's a lot. For an unprotected girl in Hollywood for many years, I can tell you I've seen some things. Like this, but now we all want to know, like, like what else? <laughs> I'll talk for y'all, because I'm like this. And I know I'm there, and I'm like, I know I heard some stuff, but like, what did you... <laughs> we'll talk. In the... In the comments that Manola made that I read earlier, she referred to a report from the Directors Guild. Um, and it struck me because uh, she wrote, there's talk of a modest quote-unquote improvement in the number of women hired to direct for television and the internet. So the natural question that I had, Why not film? is the future of diversity to be relegated to the smaller screen? Or is the future in the smaller screen? I was like two two, it was a 2% improvement over last year and for TV and a 1% step back for people of color. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like film is very, is very behind TV. I think TV, especially this season, seems to be a lot more diverse. Um, and uh, I feel like film is becoming like theater. I mean, it's continuing uh, to become like theater uh -huh. where it's, it's a very rarefied art form that is for white people mostly, unfortunately. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I also, sorry, go ahead. Um, I, I feel that no matter what, TV is challenging film no matter what. Forget diversity or whatever. It's just that you're able to do, in my opinion, longer form content and able to get more uh, into the character. So TV is making a huge challenge no matter what. I love the fact that you have powerful women showrunners who are making sure, and even like Lee Dan, like people are making sure that we are people of color and inclusion and um, diversity might be a different, I'm gonna start trying to use the word inclusive because people like diversity and they fall deaf, but of uh, getting, um, getting more people involved. I feel that like, and just on the economics of film alone, like I'm the queen of the little movie and I'm over it. Like it's so rare to make money on a little movie and it's so hard to make money on a little movie. So the internet and also doing TV, I think is the way to go no matter what. And the fact that we can be there and hold down the fort, I love it. I, I don't think we're just there. I think we're actually kind of kicking ass. Yes. And that was like, I go. mean, if Empire is the number one show on broadcast TV yes. right now and now everybody, and they have actually for the past few years since Shonda started kicking ass. Shonda. Scandal, yeah, how to get away with murder, right? Like we black women in TV are actually quite. Janine Barwa, there's a lot, there's a lot of, yeah. There's a lot of, there's other showrunners. I mean, that this is the space that we can own. And, and people want us because, to You know, be it's so funny way. because like men, and this is interesting, I feel that like men, the studio system has been so male that they sort of like, remember like it wasn't cool for stars to do TV? Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Do you remember that back in the day? And now, and like I felt like they were like, oh, who cares about TV? And they were doing the studio. And little did they know, we're like, we're kicking ass over in TV. And now we're formidable. That's right. Now. I want to be formidable with them. <laughs> I, I think that one cool thing that's happening in TV is that um, in certain categories, including women of color, we're getting to this point where there's actually freedom to fail. Like if, if one of these shows, cause, cause saying like, you know, give us a chance, we'll prove it, we'll make a success. It's like a great economic argument and it's also a devil's bargain because it invites people when something flops to say, uh, well, see, you know, we tried Viola Davis, it just didn't work. Now there's so much going on in network TV that if one of these new fall shows flops or whatever, people aren't gonna say, oh, well, you know, 
We, we just can't do it anymore. And yeah. freedom to fail is That's a quality huge. because no one ever says, well, no more movies with Adam Sandler. I mean, it's like, you know. Pity that, pity that. Here's comedians and frequent collaborators Judd Apatow and Lena Dunham, who joined us for a special Evening With event just before the release of Trainwreck. Just, uh, I, I have been enjoying collaborating with people. Yeah. And maybe I'm... Uh, uh, you know, going through a phase where I really enjoyed working with uh, Chris and Wig and Amy Mumolo on on Bridesmaids and working Woo! with you on, on Girls and and working with Amy and working with people who have very strong points of view and and it's been fun to just be around to offer suggestions and guidance in ways that I think I can be helpful. Amy had a real vision for what she wanted to do, but it was her first screenplay, so it was a good combination because I was able to talk her through just lessons I'd learned about what could go wrong and what the balance of drama and comedy might be uh, and and try to serve what she was doing because when I direct I could just like toss everything out every day and that's you know that's hard when you're the only person there you can second guess yourself and go maybe we should do something completely different when we did uh, this is 40 there were a lot of scenes I didn't know where they should go and I shot them multiple times in different shirts so that they were movable in the movie it was really a wild experience. I remember by like the 10th day you asked me to come to set, I was like, I have a stomach ache. It was just, yeah. there was a lot going on and you yes. were figuring a lot out. And if yeah. we showed up on set, we became a part of that process and I yeah. just wasn't prepared. And you didn't have enough multiple shirts. <laughs> I didn't have enough shirts. Because I didn't know what the order of the scenes would be. It's so interesting. I remember being sent back for a costume change and not understanding yeah. why I'm being like, do I look fat? Like I didn't get what was <laughs> happening. And you're like, now. no, Judd has an OCD. Judd has a real OCD. Yeah, it's a very different thing. I think and I have, uh, I'm a Order. He is. It, you should see yeah. his bag. It's one of the craziest places, and it looks like probably the inside of his mind. I realize that I think my movies are just hoarding, because people say my movies are, are long, and I always think, yeah, but then you go home and you'll watch like 17 Breaking Bads in a row, so fuck off. Then you go home and you watch Say Yes to the Dress for 22 hours oh. and tell your friends you're on a hike. Exactly, but... But you won't give me like eight more minutes. Yeah. Oh my God, he's, his movies are eight minutes longer than the other movies. Uh, but then I realized that I think it's all digital hoarding. I That's think, such, so well defined and I think that the heads of Universal will love that. They'll yeah. accept it and they'll move on. Like I'd like all my movies to be 47 years long. And then when I turn 48, they become 48 years long. <laughs> I might have a mental health problem, but... Like, I watch the show Hoarders, and uh, do you ever watch that show? Yeah. And they'll be like, do you want to throw out this pine cone from 1972? <laughs> I'm like, don't throw it out! It has sentimental meaning. His office is crazy. He saves, like, scraps of paper where he shared ideas that he can't discern now, and he's like, this is going to be really important for my retrospective. But this is your retrospective, and look, no one needed any of that shit. <laughs> Think yeah, about it. I like it. the little scrap of paper that, that has, like, weird ideas on it like if there was like an idea with with your show like if we had like little notes from the pilot like you know uh, what if he accidentally tried to have anal sex with you and say that was like on a piece of paper i would save it yeah when we have some i mean i keep all our notes meticulously saved typed up in folders so you could talk to me and i could give it to you in a form that you could actually digest but you do? Yeah, I have everything in very specific folders, and I always ask Jenny Connor like once a month if I can organize her desktop, and if I've been very good, she lets me. <laughs> That's how my OCD has manifested itself. Oh, see, I I have everything, but but in, I have a uh, feeling if I looked at your desktop, I'd faint and shit my pants and die. Yeah, yeah. 
I have them all like Whole Foods shopping bags. He walks around Los Angeles in a giant shirt from his own rap party. <laughs> shorts and like nine bags of trash. Yeah. And you can find him in West LA crossing the street back and forth just like that. I'm kind of like Vivian Meyer, the photographer, yeah. mm-hmm. and she had all of those storage facilities. Except you're very rich. Except I can afford the and storage facilities. And she lived in the yeah. attic of a family because she had no one. Yeah. Till Phil Donahue kicked her out on the street. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he kicked her out on the street, but he certainly at some point said, this lady may not be the appropriate person to watch my children. Something about Judd that I think people should know that's interesting, which Amy and I have commiserated on, is people usually assume if you're working with Judd that he's the one who's coming in, like adding the zany hand job sequence or making sure someone farts, but it's so not that. And he's actually the person who's like, can we get a little romance in here and a little emotional truth and make sure people are falling in love and make sure people are connecting and make sure there's a reason for this movie to exist. And that is the secret power of Judd Apatow that I feel like has not been properly expressed via modern media. Thank you. (laughs) It's about time. Speaking of modern media, I heard you're gonna be on Jimmy Fallon this week. I am going to be on Jimmy Fallon this week. I'm going to be doing stand-up comedy on Jimmy Fallon this week. Stand-up something you've recently yes. started doing again. I did, yes. After yeah, yeah. like a 25-year hiatus. Yes, I didn't do it for 22 uh, years. And I, we went on tour for Trainwreck, and it's been fun uh, doing it again because I think uh, when you make movies, it takes years, and then you find out instantly if people like it. So you might work on something for three years, and like I'll find out right away like if the reviews are good or if it's going to make money. And then if it does well, I'm like happy for about a day and a half. And then on Monday, I'm just like, what's the next one? And if they hate it, I just, I'm upset and go, what's the next one? So you don't have this like period of joy really. Uh, But with stand-up, you can have fun. And if it goes bad, you just try it again the next day. So it's nice to have a performance component. You just did a big book tour, so you did a lot of performing. It's so nice. You get to engage with people and see if they laugh and see if they connect to you and see if they're angry and sometimes they are. But um, I have one more question for you before we wrap up. Which is that? And then we go to the audience for questions. Yeah, which but will this be better is my than question, and which I think is like, I love Trainwreck. I think it's beautiful, and it's a super feminist film that's approaching feminism in a different way than I think we've seen done in pop culture before. And I wondered, as a father of daughters, as a husband of a really interesting actor who's always looking for smart parts, like, did you think about that, or did you just approach it like a very human story and let the politics that are inherent in it? Emerge like how did you think about your yeah. involvement with this piece of what I think is really great feminist art? I, I never really think about it. I think about everything more from a nerd's perspective Just a, it's life is tricky and hard and we have obstacles and I like seeing people try to figure it out and keep their their friendships alive and keep you know, their self-respect or their good attitude just you know just trying to get through life to me is enough for men and women and so when uh, you know we talked about girls i didn't really think of it like oh this is a a woman's story and a woman dealing with all these issues i just thought of it as just another kind of you know nerdy person i think i think of everything as freaks and geeks I think like in my head, everything that we're doing is just weird spin-off episodes of Freaks and Geeks. You know how like in the old days, there'd be like Barney Miller and they would wonder like, should we give Wojohowitz a show? And then one episode would be all about Wojohowitz. And then we would go home with Wojohowitz or Inspector Luger or something. And no then, one here knows what you're talking about. I know. I know. There's a couple. Yeah, yeah. 
So yes. I, everything feels like a, a, a spinoff to me. Um, and then, I, like with girls, suddenly everyone talked about what it meant. And then I, I began to understand what you were talking about uh, and, and how much I was... Uh, you know, in sync because it's you all the same. You have good, strong feminist I values, even if you might not have named them as such. I think I have more just human values, which are which is basically, give me a fucking break. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, come on, don't be mean to people, don't be a dick. And I think of it like that. I don't think of like, don't be a dick to women or men. I, I have just a general, can we be nicer? You want to bring the don't other. be a jerk sticker back. I think that life is as simple as that. Harold Ramis used to talk about that, like. He was an existentialist, I guess, and Buddhist, and, and uh, in the book Sick in the Head, he talks about how you know life doesn't really make much sense, so you have a choice. You can decide to be a good person just to be a good person or not be a good person. It's, it's a choice, and he said, I just choose to be a good person, and I just like to do nice things in my life as, as my choice in the godless universe. I remember and, uh, one of the first things you ever invited me to do outside of just, you know, talk about the show, was to come to this event you were throwing. And you didn't really tell me what it was. And I showed up and it became apparent that you were being honored for donating a tremendous amount of time and money to the Children's Hospital, of Los Angeles Children's mm. Hospital. And I was like, if I had done this, I would not have shut up about it for weeks. <laughs> it was like everyone would be hearing about the time that I spent with the children and the money I gave to the children and how well the children are doing and how some of them are really sick. And Judd was just super cash about it and suddenly we all show up and find out like, oh, yeah, Judd's the benefactor to many sick children. So I think that... No, but I just give the money so I don't have to meet the children. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's a really good place to open it up. Here's director Alex Ross Perry and actress Elizabeth Moss discussing their film Queen of Earth. First, they discuss how they use cinematic references during pre-production and production. Then, Perry talks about the film's music and sound. With Listen Up, Philip, it was um, the DVD that I stole. What was it? Husbands and Wives. Husbands and Wives, which he gave. He let me borrow the DVD, and I never gave it back. Um, that was really helpful. I like to have an objective viewpoint of what it's going to look like. It helps me as an actor to understand what the what the style is. I used to be. I don't consider myself very good at it anymore, but I used to be a little bit of a cinephile. So I like to understand where the director and cinematographer are coming from. So that was really helpful in that sense. And then this one was... Um, the one that I really latched onto, although there are other films that perhaps like influenced Alex more, was just as an actor, was Repulsion, which was, I think, the first one that you told me. Um, and that was the one that I sort of latched onto f that would help me in m the development of my character. Um, and then like he would, you know, no, it was, it's, he's very, he, he's really into showing things. And then it was Robert Altman's Images, and it was um, Petra von Kant, and like, that kind of thing, it's sort of, you know, he doesn't, like, you know, force it down an actor's throat, but it's like, take it or leave it, take what you want from it, this is what I want it to look like, you can watch it, you can not watch it, but this is what it is. Um, and I find that very, very helpful as an actor. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's very, like, a very film school idea to, like, picture giving an actor, like, a stack of DVDs yeah. and be like, watch all these. Yeah. But for this, it's more, it's more like... Basically, like, I know enough now about, like, the way the movies are going to be made and the general atmosphere on set where it's like, look, this is going to get referenced a lot by me and the cinematographer and right. maybe one or two other people. At the very least, you should just, like, you know, you don't watch it. If you don't want to, don't watch a two-hour movie on top of another two-hour movie. But, look, here's some stills. Maybe just, like, watch a couple clips. Just because we're going to be referring to this style a lot. And 
it'll either just be something that goes over your head or you can have some vague idea of what we're referring to. Exactly. I think that there's like a nice sweet spot there. Like I had Altman's images on my computer and one day like, you know, for lunch, I was, I was just like, you know, just watch whatever this you want. You, you know, skipped around and we're just watching parts of it. It's yeah. Like, you know, I like lied in bed in my like room uh, and like just put it on the bed and like was watching it and like napping and then I'd wake up and watch some more and I just like watched some throughout the day and it was inspiring. Yeah, it's fun because like, you know, for me, like once I've kind of decided that something's going to be important. So like I saw this Petra von Kant, Martha double feature and I was like, this is important. Then there's, uh, the last thing I want to do was watch the movie again mm-hmm. and working with a cinematographer who probably wasn't at that screening, but then has seen the movies many times, like he doesn't need to watch them. So then, cause if we watch them and if the actors watch them, then you're actually taking things away from them. Whereas if you don't, you're just kind of taking away what you, what you think you remember mm-hmm. and your version of it's always going to be a little bit different than whatever it actually is. So if the entire crew is huddled around a computer and we're painstakingly looking at frames from a movie and trying to replicate them, yeah. then, you know, we can all just go home because there's, there's nobody's doing any work. It's more fun to kind of just give the impression of something and then assume that we remember it correctly yeah like rosemary's baby i didn't watch again because i've seen that a few times but i knew what you meant when you said like kind of like rosemary's baby <laughs> yeah you know you just say like a polanski thing and it's yeah like, you're like oh okay i get it i could say <laughs> you know i could say like specifically what we're going to be talking about the most is knife in the water because repulsion takes place in the city and knife in the water doesn't mm-hmm. but like I'm, you know then, then that's just giving someone homework and i don't think anybody got into making movies and acting to do homework right you know, the whole idea behind every decision on this movie was that, you know, it was just all about whatever the most cinematic version of anything is, which is the Fassbender trick, which even if you're doing a movie all set in one room, there's the heightened cinematic version that you can do. And that's where he lives or, you know, after a certain point in his career, it's definitely where he lives. Um, and yeah, every decision was kind of based on that. Like, this is not a natural movie. There's naturalism. Uh, doesn't exist here. The lighting is often very exaggerated uh, in subtle ways that doesn't betray what you're watching, but it's not, you know, like Listen Up, Philip, where it's just meant to be very real and, you know, simple looking. And every decision had to follow that. So, you know, this just comes from, it's the same sound mixer designer and composer as Listen Up, Philip. So like every other part of this movie, it just comes from knowing what these people are capable of because I'd never really been through the process with any like that until that film so now that I'm sitting for the mix with the same guy you know I know that he can bring in his own ideas and uh, on a movie like this you know he, he same as anybody I gave him a movie or two to look at but I know that he understands things about planting little sound in one channel that creates this feeling where it slowly builds into another that I don't understand the techniques of and I don't understand the artistry of and everyone kind of knows, as we're talking about from the schedule on down, that if someone suggests something like that to me, the answer is probably just going to be like, well, yeah, sure, let's, uh, that's fine, let's just try it. So it becomes very complete. And if everybody you're working with is good and has their own ideas, then every aspect of the film is going to end up being something that can be talked about, you know, honestly. I mean, how many independent films could you sit here and talk about where, like, the discussion of the sound design even matters? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, other things that we talk about with this movie, like shot length or, mm-hmm. you know, anything like actual craft of the making of something is seldom discussed. But for me, there's no reason not to foreground it just as a fan of the different tools that you have to play with. So, yeah, it's all just, you know, heightened and letting these kind of piercing music cues set this menacing tone. And 
having weird things like, you know, the sound effects of outside that are inside a little bit louder than they should be. Or then when you're outside, the, you know, natural sound effects are a little bit off. Stuff like that that, you know, comes from the sound designer, this guy named Ryan Price, looking at some of these low-budget genre movies that I was suggesting. And, of course, you know, the history of films like this, and he pointed this out to me in this one film I also saw here at the Film Society called Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which I'd seen before, but it played here a few years ago on 16mm. You know, he's like, what makes these horror movies from the 70s feel so weird and vacant is that they didn't have any recorded sound, or they did, but then some scenes, they just couldn't do it. Or this movie that we ended up talking about on set a lot, Carnival of Souls, which is, of course, very famous. Um, You know, like, that movie was probably shot without sound. So when you watch it now, what it sounds like is very strange, and it sets a tone that, because of the fact that these movies have existed for decades, we identify with that genre. And he was like, well, here's how you can kind of inch towards a feeling like that, even though obviously this movie was not filmed without sound. Uh, you know, and then you, watch, then you watch the movie again or we're looking at clips of it in the mixing room and it's like, yeah, entire, like, you know, there's a whole room and there's just no room tone. And there's just footsteps. Not because of any artistic reason, but that's just because that's what they did. Like, the Foley mixer just dropped in the footsteps, but at the time it wouldn't be like, yeah, you, you know, you really should have some room tone that matches the room. <laughs> It would just be like, let's just make it to be some white noise and then footsteps. And those films feel a certain way now because of all these different things that I never analyzed why low budget genre filmmaking sounded that way. But you sit down with a good sound mixer and he'll explain it to you. So elements like that can really help, I think, create a tone that feels more comprehensive than, you know, it just ends up being the sum of its parts. And I think if you do it well, then people get excited by the whole thing and then they can pick apart what they found fun about it. I think it's a massive reason why people keep thinking this film is so creepy and so scary. You know, it's like there's nothing really that scary that happens in it. Like, I mean, I guess it's sort of subjective, but, you know, it's but the sound and the music and everything just lends this feeling to it that just just scares the bejesus out of you. Yeah, like anything you can do to just remind people of things that they were scared by or that just feel unpleasant or different or menacing in some way, you know, it, it can only help because on a movie like this, you don't have a hundred resources to manipulate any sort of audience reaction. You make do with what you can. So you're going to have a score and you're going to have a sound mix and you're going to have actors and camera and lighting. That's basically it. So anything other than those you can't control, but those you can really just have fun with and, and create something that feels hopefully different enough that people care to engage with it as something that, you know, it seems a little bit against the grain of whatever else is being given to them these days. For our last clip, we'll go to a conversation with Kate Winslet from last year's New York Film Festival, where she talked to Kent Jones about her work with some of the best directors working today. It has been amazing. I mean, even I myself, when I look back and, you know, God, I've worked with Ang Lee, I've worked with Peter Jackson, I've worked with James Cameron, I've worked with John Turturro. <laughs> you know, I mean, these incredible people. And uh, Jane Campion. Jane Campion, absolutely. Todd Haynes, Todd Field. Mm-hmm. I mean, Danny Boyle now. It's, you know, it's, it really has been r- it, remarkable. And I've, and I've learned so much. And I love, I love that collaboration that you experience with a director, with a really good director, when they they want to include you truly and want you to absolutely be a pivotal part of that process for them and to give them choices, you know, that for me is a a really big deal. Um, And also to have fun, to play, you know, acting, it's 
playing. You know, kids play dress up and pretend to be different characters. You know, that's what it is. It's dressing up and pretending to be somebody else. It's, mm -hmm. it's the most fantastic thing in the world. But do you have to get into a kind of a different rhythm with different filmmakers? You're getting it, you're insinuating yourself into a different world or different writers? Yeah, def yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, every actor is different. You know, every director is different, of course. Um, yeah, and it always it's always a really fun part, actually, the first sort of week or so of a shoot or a rehearsal process because you are very much figuring out, you know, what, what they want, who they are, how they process things. Um, and, and, and also, I, I just think it's very important to be a part of that team and just not judge anyone at all and just accept how odd everyone is because everyone's odd, really odd. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, it's sort of gorgeous, I think, this career for that reason. Um, everyone is so different and brings some strangeness into the room and there's nothing more exciting than being in a room of great actors with a wonderful director. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the experience of working on... Uh with Michelle Gondry in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, um, because and Jim Carrey, because uh, and from Charlie Kaufman's script, Michelle is here, and he's such a quiet, kind of shy, reserved individual, and I wonder what kind of tone he sets on the set. Um, Michelle is, <laughs> he's yeah, he's he's extraordinary. He's he he is quite quiet, as you say, and he really he he does he keeps a lot in his head, and he finds it quite hard, I think, to. Not communicate that, because he does communicate it, but his ideas are so wacky that I think it's very hard for people to believe that it's going to work. Um, I, I never had that problem. I would just go, great, that sounds fantastic. Okay, so I, so I come in this door, and then I go out that trap door, that hidden one there, and I change costumes and wigs, and I come back through this door again. I'm up for that. Let's go. And so there'd be this sort of hysterical, you know, figure-eight-type arrangements we would do, and me running around the back of the camera and changing costumes three or four times and, and, and reappearing in the same shot. I mean, um, he's, he's, he's so genius like that. There were, just, there were no special effects on that film at all. Um, and that is all Michelle um, and his experience. I think, actually, having come from, made a lot of music videos um, and learning how to be clever and keep things visually really inspiring and interesting. Um, no, I, 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 I really had an amazing time working with him. And he, yeah, he keeps a small, a small crew and, you know, keeps everything quite compact. Um, yeah, and he's got, you know, crazy mind. He would do shot lists. <laughs> His shot list would be on a napkin, you know. I kept one, actually. There was one, <laughs> I have this napkin and, he, and I made him sign it because it was so extraordinary. It was sort of a picture of me with half a face that had crumbled off. And then sort of another object in the corner that looked a little bit like a fetus in a box. And, and I, said, I said, what's this? He said, it's the scene. It's the scene that we do today. I said, no, this is really not the scene that we're doing today. No, 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 no. It's the scene. Okay. okay, it's the scene. Okay, Michelle, whatever you say. Um, yeah, he's, uh, yeah he's, he, he's, quite, he's quite crazy, yeah. <laughs> wonderful, I mean, so wonderful. Um, forgive me if you've been asked this question before, but I just want to ask, did, I would imagine that the massive success of Titanic kind of threw you a little bit. No one's ever put it to me exactly like that, I okay. have to say. But thank you for saying that, because it did throw me, yeah. Okay. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, I really, I mean, call me naive, but I had no idea. <laughs> I really didn't. I had no idea that that 
was what was going to happen with that film and to my life. And um, it's a funny old thing because I look back and I just, I just remember thinking, no, I'm not, I, I, I don't, I don't really know how to do this being famous thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I really like it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I'm ready for it either. And in mm. a funny way, I also didn't feel particularly that I'd earned it. It was a funny thing. I was still learning. I was only 21 and I still had so much to learn. I was learning everything on the job. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I just knew that if I sort of allowed myself to really catapult myself into that world if I really went with it um that it I think it would have made me I don't know I think it would have made me unhappy possibly mm -hmm. which sounds like such a strange thing to say because it makes me also sound like I don't know slightly ungrateful or something but but I just I just knew that I had to keep acting and mm -hmm. I knew that it was most important of all that that I continued to work hard and work on myself as an actress and to and to love it and mm -hmm. to nurture those things um, and so, yeah, I, I was in a position where I could choose mm -hmm. at that point and chose to do some smaller films because I wanted to stay grounded and I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to stretch myself, um, mm -hmm. and to play characters, you know? Yeah. And also I, in my mind, I also didn't want, I didn't want to burn out, you know, I didn't want this huge moment to happen and for me to kind of fizzle out as the moment fizzled out. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to stay sort of strong and true and keep chipping away at it. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it seems to have, I, I think it was the right thing. The Close Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>